Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello, I'm Jonathan Moles, and you're listening to Startup Stories, the weekly show from the Financial Times in which I talk to entrepreneurs about the joys and challenges of starting a business. Michel Yu, who co-founded the music ticketing and concert discovery platform Songkick, along with Ian Hogarth and Pete Finlay, describes herself as an accidental entrepreneur. She talked to me about her feeling of failure after the business was sold to Time Warner. Ian and I met in China in 2005, 2006. I believe we were both studying in Beijing at the time after our postgraduate degrees. And Pete, our third co-founder, was best friends with Ian from university. Ian and Pete had always wanted to start a business together ever since university. That was their kind of laying in their dorm rooms talking about their dreams kind of thing. And when they quit their jobs to start a business, they started hunting around for ideas. I had always been really interested in music. I loved music as a fan. I loved going to gigs. And when they started thinking about doing something in the music space, because at that time, MySpace was really, really huge, I said, can you just make this thing that will scan my iTunes library and tell me when concerts are happening? Because it's really annoying and I would love for that to exist. And the idea came from that germ. We applied to Y Combinator in 2007 with that idea, got accepted. And the more involved I got in working on the idea, the more I couldn't really let it go. So I then left my job as well and joined. They both moved to Boston to attend Y Combinator. I was living in New York at the time and I was commuting every weekend on the dreaded Chinatown bus down to Boston. And they were working on the idea. Ian did a master's in machine learning, but didn't know how to code. So he taught himself to code to build the first prototype. We hired our first couple of employees. I was working on the design and hired a designer in New York, and we were just collaborating remotely. But roles weren't really set at that time. We were just trying to build the first version of the prototype and get it off the ground and doing anything that it took to do that. How do you get the funding in those early days? So YC was our first source of funding. They fund you to attend their accelerator program, which was an incredible experience. Dropbox was in our cohort, for example, and we met a lot of lifelong friends in that group of people. And at the end of that program, you have a demo day, which is where we were able to demo our prototype and pitch our idea and meet a bunch of investors, and our investment came from that demo day. Y Combinator is very well known. It seems from the outside like you've won the lottery if you get in there. How hard was it getting in? I mean, I think there's some stats that it's harder to get into YC than to get into Harvard, for example. At the time, YC was much smaller, um, but it was incredibly influential on our trajectory. I mean, the brand name itself is very, very credible. I think the advice that you get from Paul Graham and all the mentors there and the peers that you have while you're going through those early stages together, it's just, it was completely invaluable. How was Songkick actually launched? We launched, I believe, in the fall of 2007. I remember we sat and aggregated a list of all of our friends and anyone we knew and emailed them about the product and said, please sign up. We made this thing. And early on, we were very lucky in that because we were aggregating concert listings from around the world and around the web. So we basically built these 
scrapers to go and crawl different ticket vendor and venue and artist websites to aggregate all these tour dates all in one place. And that was a very unique kind of set of data at that time. So we were lucky in that very early on, we hit a lot of search traffic. So anyone searching for Lady Gaga tour dates, we would be one of the top results. So that was critical in our early growth. And is there anything you could do to accelerate and emphasize that? Yeah, of course, there's a lot of like good SEO hygiene that you can make sure you do have certain link structures. I think the older you are as a website, the more authority you gain and the more third-party websites that link to you, such as when we get written up in the FT or the New York Times, that also helps our authority. So there's a lot of things we did to make sure that our SEO was really good. The idea people have maybe with tech startups is you save a lot of costs because you can turn customers into champions. Was that happening? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I personally did all the customer support in the early days, and I was really, really militant about it. I think just from a personal point of view, I really hated it when I had bad customer support from companies. So I replied to every email, helped kind of troubleshoot any usability issue people were having. That was really important to me. I think also in the early days, as a gig goer, you could have a profile where you could list all the gigs you had been to and the gigs you were going to. And live music is already a very natural community. If you're a fan of an artist, you feel an affinity with the other fans of that artist. And so we were really lucky to tap into the passion that fans have for live music and allow them to come onto Songkick and see it as a community. You had to evolve the business model over time. How did that happen? Oh, we've made so many mistakes. So initially, we started out as a gig alert service. This was pre-iPhone when we first started, actually. It would scan your iTunes library and then tell you when concerts happening, send you off to buy tickets. And we had an affiliate model at that time, and that worked well for us. Then as technology evolved, we gradually allowed you to import your Spotify library. We built an award-winning iPhone and Android app that allowed you to scan the music on your phone. That was always ticking along, but we always were kind of looking out for the ways we could grow. One thing we tried in the early days that was not a success at all was we thought we were going to be the IMDB of live music, where we thought, wouldn't it be amazing if we could have a record of every gig that ever happened from, you know, Bob Dylan and Elvis Presley all the way to today. And if every gig could have a record, like a wiki record on our database where you could upload the set list and the photos and the and the posters. And we built that for a few years and really invested in it. But it turned out that that's not what customers actually wanted. You know, I think there was a small, tiny percentage of hardcore music fans who loved that product. And, you know, a lot of us in the company loved that product so much, but we found that it actually wasn't something that people wanted. So through that, I personally learned the lesson of you have to really listen to your customers, get feedback early to iterate on what it is that you're trying to do for them and not just run away with your own brilliant idea. We also tried to crowdfund gigs with a product called Detour, which was really, really exciting at the time. So our premise was that artists were able to build an international fan base through streaming and YouTube and Spotify, etc., but weren't able to really keep up with where their fans were. So we had done a bunch of interviews with artists and managers and asked them how they planned their tours. And they were very, you know, pen and paper going by the last tour, box office results, et cetera. And we thought that there could have been a a more efficient way of doing it. And that was really around the era of when Kickstarter was very big and Indiegogo and those crowdfunding campaigns. So we set up a product that allowed fans to pledge to bring artists to their cities. And, you know, you put in your credit card and you, you committed to buying the ticket if the gig was confirmed. And we had some amazing successes 
we were able to bring Andrew Bird to South America for the first time, which was such an incredible privilege. We did a little bit of detours in Jakarta and Singapore because that was a growing emerging market at the time. And we we just really tried to make it work. But what we found was that we couldn't quite get the traction that we wanted. So we sadly had to shutter that product and wind it down because it just really didn't take off fast enough. So after that, we went back to actually selling tickets directly to fans for gigs. You were clearly passionate about some of these mm, ideas. Yeah. How do you make that decision? It's hard. It is really, really hard. And I would say that was maybe one of our flaws as a company was we were so idealistic and committed that we were too slow to realize when an idea wasn't working. So we would just keep trying, keep trying a different way to make it work because we had that faith. But I think, you know, our, our board and our investors were really helpful in seeing things more objectively. You know, at every board meeting, you, you're able to step back and kind of be more removed from the day to day and look at the numbers and talk about growth. So that was helpful. But I think in hindsight, at least for me, a lesson I learned was that we were too wedded to the ideas that we had and maybe were too slow to realize that they weren't working. In 2015, we merged with a company called CrowdSurge, who had a white label direct to fan business where they worked with artists, amazing artists such as the Rolling Stones and Paul McCartney to sell tickets to their fan clubs. And that allowed us to supercharge our growth because they had all the relationship with the artists and they had all the allocation from the artists for these fan clubs. And we had an amazing database of fans who loved to see those artists. When we merged, we saw some incredible growth. We were able to do amazing things. One of the highlights for me was ticketing Adele's world tour, her comeback tour in the winter of 2015, I think it was. And we worked with her to help sell tickets to her fan club. And the thing that she was really passionate about was stopping touts. So we developed software to help prevent touts from buying tickets. And we were wildly successful. I'm not going to remember the stats now, but something like if you compared the tickets that ended up on secondary markets for her tour versus another similar artist, we were maybe five times more successful. And that was an incredible experience. Like going to the O2 arena and knowing that 50% of that audience bought tickets through our products was just amazing. I think that really put us in the limelight. That was a very interesting experience for me because pre-merger, Songkick was around 30 to 40 employees, all technical, all software. And post-merger, the other company we merged with was about 80. So we then overnight ballooned into a 120-person company with an office in Brooklyn and Nashville. Um, and that was a very interesting experience. I think to us, culture was really, really important. I think one of the things that came very naturally to us was to try to build a sense of community around what we were doing and hire like-minded people that we enjoyed spending so much time with. So we, you know, we did things like take everyone to a festival every summer and we ended up usually going to end of the road festival. And as a team, we would just hang out there every quarter. We would have an event where we'd go out and spend time together and do something out of the office. You know, like once we did a whiskey tasting, things like that. But culture is really more about the values that you have and the way that you promote those values within your company and in the daily habits and reinforcements around that. So it's not just the perks and the fun stuff. It's also how you treat people and what behavior you condone or what you don't condone and how you serve as a role model for your team. 
How did that culture change after the merger? Oh, that was very, very, very hard. I always describe it as open heart surgery, like we're going to get a heart transplant and either this is going to work or it won't work. But we were really lucky in that it did manage to work. I think we found, you know, in CrowdSearch founders who largely shared a lot of our values, but obviously as two companies evolve separately, they have a different way of doing things. I remember one of the earliest conflicts was we had had a very strict no laptops and meetings policy because we just thought you should be present and there and paying attention. And if you're on your laptop chatting on Slack or whatever, that's just a waste of time. Like, get out. So we had to, like, decide whether we kept that or not because the other team didn't have that policy. And it was just a matter of having really difficult conversations amongst the four of us about what we wanted to keep, what we wanted to change. How do we create these new values? Like, what are the values of the new shared company that kind of aren't going to be one or the other. But steering the ship through that process when people are, you know, like, why is, why are things changing? And people don't like change. That was that was quite hard. But we had very loyal staff who stuck with us through it. And I think I feel really lucky about that. You also faced opposition from the big players in the industry. Yeah, actually, while I can't say very much about it, we ended up suing Ticketmaster in the winter of 2015 for anti-competitive practices because we were just experiencing a lot of pressure from them. That lawsuit was just settled in January for $130 million. So yes, we did experience some pretty intense competition. Lawsuits are a distraction. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think as a software company, you're used to moving quickly and seeing things happen quickly. And this lawsuit took over two years to wind down. So it is a distraction. I mean, luckily, We had an amazing team working on it who really shielded the rest of the company from it. But yeah, it's not a fun way to spend your time. People maybe assume that success in entrepreneurship is about getting your company to the enormous multi-billion dollar IPO and taking over the industry you challenge. What's your perspective on that? I left the business about a year ago now. And at the point at which I left, we were, I think, 15 million monthly unique fans using Songkick across our apps and website every month. And we were acquired by Warner Music last year, and then this lawsuit was settled this year. Within Warner, the consumer-facing product has been left intact. The team is all still there, which makes me really, really happy. I see them regularly. And they're building, you know, a a concert discovery product that helps fans go to gigs. But I look at Songkick and while it may sound ridiculous, like I don't see it as a success. Why would you see that as a failure? I think because we weren't able to stay independent and do it on our own terms. We were acquired ultimately. And it's still going, which I feel very fortunate about. A lot of acquisitions The company gets absorbed, the product gets shut down, the team members get, you know, dispersed. And that that fate didn't happen, I feel really fortunate about. But, you know, we're not able to continue on our mission of helping fans go to gigs in a better way, in the way that we wanted to when we first set out. And I think that's why, personally, I see it as a failure. Would it have been possible to avoid the acquisition? Very rarely do companies, are they able to go public and stay independent? But that's always, I think, what you aim for when you first start a company. At least that's certainly what we aimed for when we first started the company. But being able to be acquired is a privilege as well. So I know I'm being quite harsh when I make that assessment. But personally, that's how I feel like, you know, that's what we wanted to, to, to achieve, to be an independent company. And 
be a world recognized brand name and able to see the growth and the innovation that we wanted to see in the ticketing space. And ultimately, those hopes were closed off by both the settlement and the acquisition. Is it a case of you get bought because of these huge sums of money being offered as well? I mean, there's a million reasons to get acquired. But for us, it was a safe home for our product and our team. And it made sense at the time. I asked Michelle Safar of the international business school HSA Paris to comment on the sense of failure and disappointment Michelle felt after her company was acquired. I guess that if you would have spoken to another co-founder or an investor or maybe just an employee or the acquirer or even the users, you would have different answers. So the success of a failure can be perceived completely differently depending on who do we speak about. The perception of Michel is one perception. If on a financial perspective they made money, you know, probably the investor would have been happy. It's very important being clear with your goals and drivers when you are founding a company. People might have the same goals, but not the same drivers or the opposite or any combination. And there again, it's related to the previous point. When she started, Michel, she had some goals and drivers. Did she express them? Did she challenge them herself with a potential mentor? Did she share it with the other founders or maybe with her partner? The goals and drivers we have in life, often we don't challenge them. Like, I want to be rich. I want to be successful. And then when you get older, of course, you know this, you come back and say, oh, maybe it was not the right driver because now I'm rich, but I'm unhappy and I'm divorced. So Being clear about the goals and drivers before starting, it's uh, really essential. I can give you an example of goals and drivers that, to me, are extremely dangerous. So one easy one. I would like to be extremely free. So free means rich because then I don't bother about money anymore and then I can be myself totally independent. That would be one goal. Then you say, okay, now, uh, what is your driver? Well, my driver would be, if they reveal it, a bit of a take-the-money-and-run attitude, sell the company quickly. Then we go through the process of uh, rounds of financing, raising money, dilution, power, and the story tells them that uh, what if the dilution makes them not so rich at the end when we speak about realistic valuation? And in reality, do startups, they make good money. But what does it mean? After three rounds of dilution, they have to share the capital, but they don't know the process of dilution sometimes. And then the alternative I propose to them is say, okay, you're young, very young. Why don't you consider that this company is the first one? So you learn a lot and you are not going to be extremely rich, but your goal is to learn a lot and then maybe second or third company would be the one that make you really rich because you would be really trained. So knowing your goals and drivers may change what you want. Once you set your expectation to yourself completely inside your head, sometimes you never change until you reach a point where you are happy or very often disappointed. But also, and I think that Michel had the problem, is when you set the bar and you just are a bit under, because she didn't fail to my perspective, but I didn't leave the story, of course. It looks like a success from outside. 
And when you set the bar at a certain level and you don't reach that level, whatever happens, even if you're rich, even if people tell you that you are successful, for yourself, you look very unsuccessful just because you don't reach your objective. So does Michelle feel that the experience taught her some useful lessons about herself? Yeah, 100%. I think I never dreamed of being an entrepreneur. Like I've I've always called myself the accidental entrepreneur. You know, I've given talks about how you can start a company if you don't fit the profile of the hoodie-wearing Harvard CS dropout, which is me. And you learn a lot about what's important to you, how you want to interact with people. I think managing a team and running a company teaches you a lot about leadership that you might not know unless you've done that um, and what kind of leader you are and how you can be a leader in your own way. It doesn't have to look a certain specific way. I think... The other thing that I've learned about myself doing this is that, you know, I was a total outsider. I didn't come from the tech world. I studied English and philosophy. And the amount you can achieve if you just try and work hard and try to learn as much as possible is just infinite. I don't think I'm a terribly confident person, but that I could come as an outsider into this industry and make a difference and just teach myself, like, if I can do it, anyone can. And that's something that I've learned from this experience. Next week, we talk to an entrepreneur who is convinced that artificial intelligence software can provide a customer experience for businesses that is equivalent or better than humans. Don't forget, you can catch up on previous episodes of Startup Stories if you visit our special page, ft.com forward slash startup. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.